Welcome to This Week in the Warner Archive Collection, where we discuss our newest releases. I'm George Feltenstein, and I'm proud to be joined by my colleagues, Matt Patterson and D.W. Ferranti. We have a lucky seven new releases this week on the Warner Archive Collection podcast, as Matt, Dan, and I review the new releases available now at our website, shop.warnerarchive.com. Let's run them down for you. First of all, we end the month as we began the month with a new set of Forbidden Hollywood releases. Four films in one sensational new collection. Sensational. Sensational as well. Forbidden Hollywood Volume 7, which contains The Hatchet Man, Employee's Entrance, Skyscraper Souls, and X-Lady. Then, for you TV fans, if you thought 8 is Enough Season 2 wasn't enough, well, 8 is Enough Season 3 will fill the bill until we get to Season 4, which we will. It's never enough. Once is not enough is what Jacqueline and Suzanne said, so maybe that also refers to this television series. And also, once not being enough would refer perhaps to the relisted titles. Indeed, five films that have been out of print, scarce, rare, and hard to find, are now back in print, courtesy of the Warner Archive Collection. They are Command Decision with Clark Gable, Land of the Pharaohs with Joan Collins, Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner with Tom Courtney, The Courtship of Eddie's Father with Glenn Ford, and Free Jack with, uh, what's that guy's name? Mick Mick Jagger? Oh, righto, Blighty. But let's not forget David Johansson. Oh, yeah. Lead singer for the New York Dolls and lead singer of the Rolling Stones, teaming up in a sci-fi flick with Emilio Estevez. Awesome. Okay, well, that's at the end. I know. But now we're going to go... Now we're going to go back in time instead of forward in time to 2009. Here we are, and we're talking about Forbidden Hollywood Volume 7 as we end April, as we began the month with Forbidden Hollywood Volume 6. Now with Volume 7, I think we have some of the very best pre-codes from our library finally coming to DVD, which is substantial given the excellence of the previous volumes. Well, and these have four similar but different pre-codes, and so you get a good panoply of all the kinds, from all different kinds of adultery to all different kinds of violence. Dan, your opinion, please. Well, I just want to say that these are definitely four of the most requested of the pre-codes. Oh, yes. Also four of the most notorious. Also, each is very, very terrific in its own way. I do have to say, the first film in the set, Edward G. Robinson and Hatchet Man, has an ending that is so terrific and so shocking. I am not going to say anything about it except, you know, almost a century later, that's one riveting conclusion to a film. And and it has the hallmark of William A. Wellman as director. If you think about the ending of his public enemy made the year before... Mm -hmm. And that ending still leaves audiences gasping. I I don't think that an American film really uses a hatchet so well for another 60 years. I think that's one of the things that shocks people about this film is there is, and it's one of the things that makes it a pre-code that constitutes being included in Forbidden Hollywood. Dan and I were just discussing this non-podcast time socially of what constitutes what just because a film was made before the production code doesn't mean it belongs in one of these collections and we're very particular about which ones we choose and The Hatchet Man I think First of all, this is the first time it's ever been on home video. It was mm. never on VHS, wow. never on Laserdisc, very hard to find. And all four films in the collection have been remastered for inclusion here. But The Hatchet Man has had a little bit of a cloud hanging over it 
because there are because the Caucasian cat, yeah, okay. yeah Caucasian actors portraying leading roles that are Asian characters. And yeah, it's a dated practice, but you know, just like in West of Shanghai, they, these are not racist caricatures. No. It's just I a, I read it in and this was sort of an interesting note that at the time Makeup artists at the time felt if you took one Caucasian and made them up as Asian, you and had to you do it across the yeah, board. Yeah, you had to yes. do it across the board. Right. And Otherwise, you, it really stuck. Right. Out. And you can see, you know, they wanted to build the movie around Edward G. Robinson, of course, because, you know, we're talking about essentially a sympathetic but, hitman. And he was a star at the yeah, time yeah. among American M- Among audiences. the very biggest. Right. And so having decided to bankroll the picture around Edward G. Robinson, then the feeling was we had to cast it all Caucasian made up. There are benefits to that because it gets us Loretta Young as the young, young wife in love interest. And there are also quite a few Asian actors in the minor, in and my, minor and roles in the film. She was only 19 yeah, I was gonna in say this that. film. Yeah. I mean, I think, and, and there's a through line because she's also the leading lady of employee's interest, which yeah. we'll talk about right. in a minute. But... What struck me about this was Robinson came from the New York stage. He had a pedigree, and you had this short Jewish stage actor who rose to fame playing an Italian gangster, and now they're casting him as another ethnicity. But I don't know if it was the filmmakers or if it was him or if it was everybody, but thank goodness they didn't resort to insulting dialect. I mean, right. there is, I think that's what makes the discomfort that some people may feel about what they refer to as yellow face, if you will. Whatever discomfort may be emanating from that is vindicated by the integrity of the performances, especially Robinson's. Yeah, and, but but all the actors are really just, they are just really, really this Dudley film is Diggs full of great performances. And, 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 the, and the storyline. The story, it, it is about San Francisco's Chinatown, and it starts off years, about 15 years before. It covers the Tong ta- from the time of the Tong Wars to the time of the syndicate. Right. Right. And so Edward G. Robinson plays a hatchet man who... Uh, of one of the tongues, and his job is to enforce... The syndicate would call him a torpedo. But he did have a ceremonial hatchet in which he used to dispense the tongues justice, which at San Francisco at the time, and they make a point of saying this in the film itself, that was how the Chinese-American population policed itself. And he is called upon in the present to perform one more... Right, and in the intervening years, he has very much modernized himself and attempted, he's acclimated to, he's sort of becoming a neo-American, and he's trying to push the rest of the Tongs into the modern era. Unfortunately, up in Sacramento, the syndicate's involved, and And, there's narcotics and and adultery. And let's just mention, Loretta Young is his ward. Yes. And we can tell how that became, because that's not really giving anything away. Yeah, but there's four other films, and you know... Oh, all right. I just love the setup. I'm sorry. I think one, it reminded me a little bit of a not as good movie as we wished it had been Godfather 3. They keep pulling me back Yeah, yeah, but that that is... It's a little bit like Michael Corleone having freed himself from the shackles of the past and getting pulled back in 
And well, then, Robinson's like, I'm free. If and then, and then, when you think that that's where the film is going, it takes yet another turn. Yeah. One of the things that distinguishes the Hatchet Man on this DVD is that it's never been on home video before. But the next two films that we're talking about have not only been out on VHS and Laserdisc previously, although neither format is something you could buy in a store for many, many years. These films have been remastered for DVD, but they were part of Forbidden Hollywood at its inception on VHS almost 25 years ago. And, and they were called Forbidden Hollywood the, then. When we started the brand Forbidden Hollywood, Skyscraper Souls and Employees Entrance were in the first early releases. And they were on VHS and Beta. And then they were also uh, in the first Laserdisc collection. Those masters have been what you've seen on television ever since. And for the first time in almost 25 years, both films have been remastered for inclusion in this new Forbidden Hollywood so Volume 7. I can put the Beta in the closet again. Put the beta back. Yes. <laughs> Nobody puts the beta I have in two the working right. Betamaxes at home. So, I, I know uh, you do. <laughs> yes. So the important thing is that one of the things that establishing Forbidden Hollywood did is really underscore the importance of certain performers who were not Cagney or Bogart or Robinson that, that were more famous from the 30s. And I'm talking about people like Warren William. And Warren William has emerged, I think, as the unofficial king of Warner pre-code. And we have actually an MGM as well as a Warner because Skyscraper Souls, he was uh, lent out by Warner Brothers. To MGM, and when, so. it's interesting about Skyscraper Souls is a... It reminded me of the mind reader in that we have a scoundrel with scruples. Oh yeah, and William makes it absolutely because employees' entrance is much more of a classic. He's warm a scoundrel, money, just a scruples. scoundrel without <laughs> scruples. But this right. one, he's a scoundrel, but he's really sympathetic and he has a code of honor and he tries to follow it. But both of these, and again, as you said, these these are established pre-code. These are tent poles of forbidden of, Hollywood, right? And they've got adultery. They have poor moral choices and actions, and there's violence in them. And the sexual freedom. Yes. That would certainly be so many things that would Substance be. Substance abuse. Absolutely. Yeah. Narcotics. Verboten. At the <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, they, One thing I noticed, sorry. I couldn't help but notice, it's sort of a funny backwards thing, is like, so I was watching these films, not only is Warren William in both and plays Entrance Skyscraper Wallace, Wallace, Wallace Ford. Ford is in both. And yes. as I was thinking, you know, the formulation that came to my mind, this is why it was funny, was Wallace Ford, who is best known for Freaks, right. which and, no ooh. one would say that. And a patch of blue yeah. in 1965 yeah. as an old man. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, he's a totally forgotten actor that people don't really talk about. And he has very prominent roles that are very similar. Yes. These films are so similar, that's, and yet they yeah. came from... To, it, it's like MGM, there are two films that MGM made that are very Warner-like. One of them is Midnight Mary, oh. which is the Wellman film with Loretta mm -hmm. Young. And Loretta Young and Wellman were both borrowed from Warner Brothers to make that at MGM. And Midnight Mary, we can talk about this a little later, is part of the Warner Archive instant streaming service in high definition. Oh, but Midnight Mary was part of our William Wellman Forbidden Hollywood Volume 3, but was like it felt like a Warner picture made at MGM. Skyscraper Souls Absolutely, feels yeah. very much like that as well. And the telltale sign that it's MGM is it's a little longer. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, if, it was MG, if it was made at Warner Brothers, it would have had uh, probably 10 minutes less on the running time. See, I thought you were going to say Marino Sullivan. Yeah. Well, that too. Now, uh, Skyscraper Souls, he plays the boss of a building. 
And then real estate developer and banker who, right. is, who has made an improper loan and now he's in danger of losing the skyscraper that he's d- devoted his life and, to. And it's also about the people who are in the skyscraper yeah. and their lives. Unlike you know. treacly cloying British dramas, when America goes upstairs, downstairs, it's all working people. And it's a hundred floors. And it's a hundred floors, but it, <laughs> yes, it's, it's class and work. And, and then employees' entrance is about a giant department store. Giant department store, and it's very and similar. He's thing. the big boss. He's the big manager, and it's a upper floor, lower right. floor. Both of these films, I don't know why, but in rewatching them for the work that we were doing for this set, it made me think of looking back at corporate America and yeah. various pastimes, and it made me think of Mad Men, and I don't know why. Oh. Probably because of the promiscuity and the it's the backroom peccadillos of bosses. I don't and, know. And all, but also and, just, the, the, it's like, a, you know, just sort of like, like some of our colleagues at work who weren't so familiar with these pre-code films, when they, when they have seen them, they're like, oh, people were just like us back then. I guess and that's like, it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and but I hadn't really spent a lot of time watching them Recently, I had watched them a lot when we worked on them in the late 80s, the early 90s, but it's, the, it's like a it's revisitation the, with a new context. It's the workplace power mm-hmm. sexual dynamics mm-hmm. that are the that's same a, that's a because they of, are unequal Yeah, and everybody is trying to get an angle or an advantage or get something out of other people in, in, and not in normal ways. And, and that's I, the drama. I thought of the, the character of Varie Teasdale, who's basically the mistress of Warren William in Skyscraper mm-hmm. Souls, and the mentress, the mentor, the lady yeah. mentor of Maureen O'Sullivan. She is best known in my mind for singing Spin a Little Web of Dreams in Fashions of 1934. Oh, right, 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 right. And I right, think right. that's how most people really know her, but her role in in it's pivotal in this yeah, film is, me, is very pivotal. She's, 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 really she's the good. fulcrum for she's the whole the, drama. She is the Joan. Yeah, I mean, well, and that's yeah. there you go. There's again that yeah. Dan, I was surprised though that you didn't really see employees' entrance as the tale of a store detective. Who <laughs> I was, was gonna, what, to get I was his. gonna do that shtick. What, <laughs> what store detective? Pray, pray, we, tell we, we all know what happened in this film as as it was running, and then the credits, and then I went. It's probably one of the best scenes in the film when the store detective played by, drumroll please, Alan Jenkins, basically tries to implicate that a customer has done something improper when, in fact, it's really not clear whether she did or she didn't, but she's wealthy and her husband is a columnist for the newspaper and basically she walks out of the joint with a very expensive item courtesy of the misjudgments of one actor by the name of Alan Jenkins there you go that's one of the things about uh, employees entrance is it's very very dark and serious at times and then there are these fade outs Alice White Uh as the she's the Joan also well yeah and and because we just watched sweepings right which is also the tale on you know because this these take place over a period of years and follows the workings of a department store but this is a little different than sweepings. But I feel like I know what it would be like to be in a department store of this era now between those two films. Now, the last film in the collection has been available on video before, but has also been remastered from new film elements. Looks really great. Is X Lady with Betty Davis and Gene Raymond. Now, this was not previously in a Forbidden Hollywood collection and deserves to be because it deals with 
the validation of there is no need for the convention of marriage. Well, it's really funny is about watching this, and I, I mentioned this to Matt, is like having to then also watch Eight is Enough. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> nope. and the conflict in Ex Lady is that Betty Davis and her lover have decided they don't need to get married, nope. they can cohabitate. And parents are very upset. And and they feel that marriage will ruin their yes, relationship. And marriage is an outmoded and, institution. And now, talk about Mad Men. So we go ahead almost 50 years, and you can see Tom Bradford having the same conversation with his children as if the previous 50 years never happened. Well, and thanks to the production code, most of those, 40 of those 50 years were erased. Yeah. From 1934 until the 60s. So this is about 30, 35 years. So... The basic setup for X Lady is Betty Davis, and this is really her first headlining role. She and her lover decided they don't need to get married, but I just want to point out successful she's a prof- professional. She's a, she's a professional graphic designer. More Mad Men for you, right? Oh, and it's advertising, right? Yeah, yeah. It's all and her lover has it's its all own about adver- the advertising yeah. business. And uh, on a lark, they decide to experiment with yeah. marriage. And therein lies the drama and the comedy. And an eventual trip yeah, has they get to go to dooming Cuba. consequences. Yes. Now, oh, and I wanted to say, A, it has highlight, which growing up in if Boston. from the East yes, Coast, yes. you know what highlight is. So it's great to see highlight. But I have to say, for me, the scene where she and Jean Raymond are watching the Cuban dancer yeah. in the nightclub mm-hmm. has to be one of the hottest, most erotic, don't get your hopes up, people, you don't see anything, it's still 1932, but what's going on behind the eyes of these two Gl- actors, is, it's an amazing, breathtaking sequence. It's implication, and I think yeah. that's what, and they probably, I guess after the code, the dance would not have been as tantalizing. And but it's it all, there's no dialogue. But eyes, yeah. you could still it's have just eyes. Slight it, touches and glances and then they make their way to the couch. What, it's what amazing. Was, what was unique about that is normally it would have focused more on the dance, but the dance is always in the periphery of the frame. Right. Mm-hmm. You're, they're front and center and you're watching the dance through their glances. And the implication of a man and a woman being turned on by another woman's dance. I don't right. think we would see that for decades either. Nope. No, there's, there's a, an implied eroticism. And the film, this film had a somewhat sullied reputation years yeah. later, undeservedly, because this is the film that was excerpted in Whatever Happened to Baby Jane to show what a bad actress Jane Hudson was. As opposed to her older sister, Blanche, played by Joan Crawford. So the Joan Crawford film excerpted in Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, Sadie McKee is an excellent film. They use scenes from Ex Lady to show that Jane Hudson was a bad actress. And I just think that out of context, one could maybe think that. But I think Betty Davis is terrific. Oh, she's great. Movie. Yeah, yeah. But, so it really you, wasn't until the video re-release that in the late 80s, early 90s, that people got to see this film again and say, wait a minute, this is a good movie. And but I was just going to say, but you do see people carrying that prejudice to this film. To, to this oh, film. Yeah. Be- yeah. And they think just because they saw it out of context. Yeah. Right. They think negatively about now, it. That's now, weird. I do want to say that this film had one of my more recent discoveries because of the film Caller Savage, uh, Monroe Owsley as the cad. Every time I see this guy in one of these films, one of this era's films, <laughs> I am enraptured with his oiliness. Frank McHugh has a great, great supporting role in this film and a very unusual character. So all in all, you have four films remastered with great cast from Warner Brothers and MGM 
This is a release we're very proud of and hope that people will be as excited about it as we are. That makes, what, eight pre-codes this month, right? I guess four and four make eight. Oh, eight. I saw what you just did. Eight is enough. Oh, but eight is not enough, not when it comes to pre-codes or the Bradfords. Well, and that's when, six and seven. When you <laughs> have 27 or 28 episodes. 28. When you have 28 episodes across a multitude of discs, that's a lot more than eight. Two <laughs> two-parters. <laughs> so this is Eight is Enough at its zenith as a, one of ABC's uh, high-rated television series. The, this is right at the end of the 70s. It's the end of the 70s. It's the, the microcosm of, of the time. And this is really when the show, after going through its difficult first season into the second season, really has fully established hit itself. Hit its stride. Hit its stride. And... This season introduced the new theme song, sung by Grant Goodeve. Beautiful. I still, as a viewer today, can't understand the use of the laugh track, but it was the era. How many hour-long shows hour long, had laugh yeah. tracks? Yeah, and and it, it, it was more, I mean, yes, it was comedic, but it was more of a family drama. It, yeah. yeah. And, 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 but what confused me about that show is with the laugh track, I always kept expecting it to end at a half hour. Well, I think that the, I goes. think the laugh track was a very savvy move to get younger kids to watch the and show. And it was it was I, I run it what was called the family yeah. hour. The first episode of the season. Who's crazy here? It goes right at the heart of the premise of the show. The plot has to deal with Tom actually having to deal with all that he's been dealing with for right. the first two he seasons. Can't, he can't sleep. Yeah. And he's like, "Why can't I sleep?" And then it is suggested he finally unwillingly goes to see a therapist and the therapist gets Tom's story and the therapist pretty much goes, well, of course you can't sleep. Right. <laughs> Look at all you've gone your through. Your wife died. Yeah. You're taking care of all these kids. You have a stressful job. You just remarried. But, but this is so shameful to him. You're suffering from high anxiety. <laughs> yeah. It's so shameful to him that he's seeing a therapist that he doesn't want to tell anyone and so that's when the wackiness ensues. I mean, that's also when we get that glimpse into this transitional era that America was going through because the show was saying, hey everybody, it's, it's, okay it's okay to get therapy because at that time, especially men were like, I don't need any help. I am man. And instead of telling people what happened, Abby thinks that he's having an affair well, and his kids think that he has a heart condition. Because uh, his therapist's name is the same name as a heart surgeon. So they think he's dying. And, of course, it's, he's not dying. He's not having an affair. He's just having a little trouble sleeping. And then by the end, you're like, hey, I think he's going to cope because he's got a big family. And, and he has a lot of coping together. to do for the next oh my, what 26 a episodes, including the two two powers, which brings the 28, including... Nicholas deciding the family doesn't want it anymore and yeah. running away to San Diego. Abby's parents get divorced. Some Children of trying to find their ways in the world, taking hands at like running daycares and things. Oh, yeah, in the house. Yes. Uh, which brings us to a, a guest starring role of a very young Corey Feldman. <laughs> and then don't some of the girls move out later in the season? Yes, girls decide they need their freedom that was, that and move out, which makes Tom then decide, no more curfews, open house. <laughs> Just like some schools did at the time. Young David, the oldest Bradford, there's a moving episode where his uh, a good friend of his dies rather young, uh, which leads David to sort of start courting death and the other kids have to intercede. I mentioned the two-part where Nicholas runs away to San Diego looking for his friend that was played by Will Gear on the Christmas episode the previous season, only that friend has since passed on, but we have another great 
older actor, Jack Elam, there to help get Nicholas back home playing a con man. Then another two-parter down the way where David, who's finally asked Janet to marry him, freaks out and takes off. That's right. He goes on a cross-country fact-finding And the best way to find yourself is through the zen art of hang gliding. I think he would have been much better off just moving into the attic like Greg Brady did. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that really solved everything. And getting the perm. Yeah, that that's true. Now I'm gonna. It is enough is one of our most popular series, most requested series, and when we put out season two right before Christmas, people were barely done yeah, digesting. Barely, yeah. I was like, where did they have the time to finish season two? It was and like yeah. two Where's days later. Three? Where's season three coming out? I should mention Rosanna Arquette plays a young high school girl who's pregnant. Another sort of there you go. big storyline of the time. And then uh, Growing Pains, uh, Tracy Gold is found in this, as well as. Abe Vigoda playing a pissed off senior citizen <laughs> as only the great Abe Vigoda can. Oh, I thought he would have been Nicholas's new friend. <laughs> no, that was Jack Elo. Oh, okay. Well, Eight is Enough, the complete third season now available at our website, shop.warnerarchive.com. And now, talk about availability. We have five fantastic feature films, which were on DVD, went out of print, and are now back through WAC. And we can start by talking about the oldest and wisest possible uh. of the bunch, and that is Command Decision with Clark Gable. Well, not just Clark Gable, though. Boy, what a cast. This film, and also a film that was made at 20th Century Fox just a little bit later called 12 O'Clock High, mm-hmm. these films, both of them, were used for executive decision training seminars. Oh, that's what? In the 70s and 80s. Huh. That they would show these as about making the right, right. decision. Someday right. you may and have to lay off half your staff. Leadership and making decision under, you know, protest or under extraordinarily difficult conditions. I don't think people do this anymore, but it was very, very popular for several decades. And there were people that specialized in you know hiring themselves out to companies getting big bucks to do right. training seminars with command decision and twelve well, o'clock. Well, I so want that job. Uh, <laughs> now now this this movie uh, the setup because and it was based off of a play. This and is, you can tell this is I a mean, war movie. You do see the proscenium yeah. within the yeah, war I mean, theater. The, yeah. the, the actors are so good. <laughs> you are swept up in the story, but you do notice that the film. It's right. just talking, but and, what good talking. And there's some stock footage, but there isn't really even combat stock footage. Right. Now, the setup is, of course, very similar to Dawn Patrol. Yes. But that had aerial dogfights, but all the drama took place because it was about a bunch of commanders feeling the pressure of their command and in sending people out to die. But what's interesting command decision is it's sort of... The pressure isn't coming from the air ground troops and their general. That's right. Rather, the pressure is coming in from outsiders in Washington and the press who see his who see what he's doing as wasteful, whereas the boys in the planes and he know how crucial what they're doing is. Now, Clark Gable plays the two-star. I think he's a two-star he's general. He's a brigadier general. Who is in charge of a squadron of B-17 bombers stationed in England. And he's sending them on a series of uh, daring raids. Daring daylight precision bombing raids. Past the point of fighter escorts. Deep into Germany. And we don't know why. And we're losing record number of bombers on these things. Now, uh, 
Let's just run down some of the cast. Oh, yes, please. Walter Pigeon plays his superior officer who has worked very hard to get the Army Air Force off the ground alongside Billy Mitchell and sees what Clark Gable is doing is perhaps putting that into danger. Van Johnson playing the Van Johnson role (laughs) of the saucy enlisted man. Professor Quatermass himself, Brian Dunleavy. Oh, yeah. As the other general. Uh, Then we got uh, Charles Bickford, John Hodiak, Edward Arnold, and... In a small but really nice performance, Marshall Thompson from Datari. Right. Now, Clark Gable, wasn't he in the in the Air Corps himself? He was in the Army. I, Army I Air Force? I think, uh, like, right after... His... After Carol Lombard died, mm-hmm. he enlisted and uh, really wasn't interested in anything except fighting the war because... Carol Lombard had been so invested in the war effort. She was like the major... You know, all accounts indicate that that was an unbelievable love affair and marriage. And so his level of devastation was such that he was, you know, really out out of reach for quite some time and solely dedicated. So when he came back to MGM, he was looking for roles that dealt with post-war kind of thinking and uh, I both actually in looking back at World War II as well as post-World War II. I was just going to say that I, I dug up some information that he had flown five missions as a gunner in a B-17 bomber. So he, he knew, he this, knew what yes, he was yeah, doing. It wasn't you know, that he was making training films. <laughs> he was really on the front lines. He wanted to know that he would, you know, risk his life for his country Wait. and he was a great great citizen. He talks down a a, 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 um, a gunner, I guess, who's taken over. Oh, that scene is, yeah, yeah, yeah. wow. There's a guy who's uh, trying to bring a, B, a crippled B-17 in for a landing, but he's a tail gunner, and he isn't a pilot, and there's this just great scene where it's, you don't see him, you just hear him over the radio, but you just see Gable's face, and you see him just trying to bring this guy in and bring him home, and I, I love that scene. I don't think people give him enough credit. Gable? Yeah. Well, I, I really think, think I think they give him too much of the wrong credit. Right. Because you know, the, as the super dashing, handsome, the the Rhett Butler side of Clark Gable, which he is, which is know, not to be sneezed yeah, at. Not nor at all. It happened one night. Um, Oscar right. winning side. I of mean, because this is a super. But but his just solid dramatic right. chops are amazing. And if you look at films like this, The Hucksters, which came before this, which we put out about a year and a half ago, the level of excellence in his acting, the quality of his well, work is really super. Because you know, like, like Henry Fonda is justly noted for like how solid he is right. in every. Role. Right. But Gable, too. Right. And if you look at uh, some of the other films that we put out, like uh, Any Number Can Play, um, Lone Star, all the films of the, the post-war Gable yeah, I think, was less dashing yeah. and much more gritty. And, and I, we talked about this earlier with, mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago with Never the Let 50s. Me Go. Yeah, yeah. And I think the post-war Gable people need to come around because people kind of, I think, in the popular imagination go, happen one night, go off the wind, misfits. And they missed yeah. this whole crucial era where he was kind of where I he was, was going, a yeah. working dramatic actor who really just delivered solid role after solid and role. And this film role. was a huge hit at the box office. I would hope so. This yeah. is a and great movie. It's dra- it's pure drama, you know, just based off the stage, and they didn't change a heck of a I lot. I mean, you would have thought it's, it's the, the, the the temptation would have been to like throw in More. the bombing runs because right. it would have been big drama, and then. Uh, Sam Wood was the director, and I, you know I don't know if it was in order to be more fidelious to the source material. He just wisely said, you know, 
it works better if we don't see the bombing missions because then we're in the unknown right. that the actors. Are I think also the play itself yeah. was was well received. You're enough. making the command decisions. They don't know what's happening. Right. The whole point they, is you send people away later. and you don't find out until later what's right. happened. And and you have to live with the consequences. So, which brings us. Which to brings us. Oh, well, we have people willing to give their lives for their country because oh, command right. decision is about people willing to give their life for their country. Oh, whereas nice. Land of the Pharaohs is about somebody willing to give his country for his life. Now, this film stars Jack Hawkins and was the American screen debut, I believe, of Miss Joan Collins and was filmed here at Warner Brothers in breathtaking Cinemascope and alluring Warner Color. And believe me, when you see Joan Collins, you'll understand the breathtaking. There you go. And one of the film's most interesting qualities is the composition of the photography, which is why in many uh, instances this film is actually studied in film schools because of... How to set your cinemascope? Basically, yes. And uh, Scorsese in particular has noted the the compositions in this picture, which I thought were quite interesting coming from him. Movie is so very interesting. I mean, <laughs> it starts off so you see Howard Hawks, and then you got Howard Hawks doing the big sweeping biblical era desert yeah. sweeping, and then you get about 20 25 minutes in the film, and then you actually discover that the film you're watching, this spectacular cinemascope epic, at its heart. Is a film noir. Yes. <laughs> it's a very, very personal. There's no heroes in this film no. at all. Well, the Egyptian people. There's a, yes. there's a voiceover. The, the Egyptian people and, and the but capture. But you know, when yeah. the voiceover stops explaining to you about the grandeur of the Egyptian people, yeah. then the movie really starts. Oh, and like a film noir, we have we have the voice yeah. of God narrator, too. Yeah. But, I mean, it's, it's like, you know, this is about conniving selfish people caught up in their own schemes that inevitably leads them to a dark and ironic doom. I think that's a noir picture right there. Well, Only it's bright, it's color, it's sun. Joan Collins is... It's scantily clad. Joan Collins plays a a Cypriot. Cypriot. A Cypriot uh, from Cyprus, a princess who is uh, given to the pharaoh in lieu of money because they are a poor nation. And he accepts her and as a well, second wife. they share a passion for each other and a passion for gold. And, yeah. and, and it is that passion for gold. We accept her. Google, gobble, Google, gobble. One of us. One of us. The, Speaking of Wallace Fort. <laughs> and, uh, and they do like gold, but there's a certain gold that she is not allowed to have. Yes. But again, you see in her eyes, she is She's going gonna to get have that. Yep. that gold. We also have to note that the music in this film is yes. incredibly stirring. This is a cult favorite that was out of view for a long time, was out on DVD briefly. Now we bring it back. And now we move into the 60s with a very, very different kind of film, probably 180 degrees different. Uh, no, and yet yeah. there is a relationship because we had a British leading lady in the last film. Oh. This next film is a UK import of great importance. And it's uh, Tony Richardson is the director of this film, The Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner, starring Michael Redgrave and Tom Courtney. And this is Tony Richardson really, Dan, you probably can speak a little bit about this. There was really kind of a a new British cinema. There's like the new the free late cinema. 50s, yeah. the early 60s. Um, it, 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 it was called free cinema. Yeah, I and, just said that. Oh, I thought you said new free. 
No, it was new. The free cinema. Oh, I'm sorry. Because he had done look back in anger. He had done the entertainer. Well, they, he they, had such an edge. And they, then after this, he did Tom Jones. Well, he sort of incorporated elements of the new wave into yeah. the British kitchen sink drama to be a very gritty, very real, but still somewhat experimental, but really focused on class and issues and freedom and and. You know, this is 1962, and it's a precursor to everything that would upheave the Western world. Right. And right. It, let's just say it's also it's black and white. It's shot with lightweight cameras. It's it a, moves back and forth in time. Right. Well, it has it, the narrative device that they use is actually one that's used very frequently in modern filmmaking. It has a super existentialist leading character who yeah. makes a very very Camusian decision. <laughs> and it, right, it's a it's a coming of age film. It's about a kid who's a lower class kid who is caught and and you know right at the beginning he's he's been caught for something a crime. You don't know what he's exactly been doing, but he's taken to a a reform school slash prison where he is assigned to a house just like Harry Potter. And uh, it's that kind of scene. If Harry Potter went to Borstal? Yeah. Cause, well, because it's like this weird Victorian castle building. Yes, win it for Hufflepuff. And that's exactly what was going through my mind in this. I'm sorry. He has to get through this kind of terrible reform school. And meanwhile, you simultaneously, uh, in a parallel track, are, are cutting to what got him here in the first place. And his the formative experiences, the right. things that he won't necessarily ever talk about no. as well. He's a quiet he's, kid. He's a lonely kid. And his one saving grace is he can run, and so he is being groomed by the headmaster to win this athletic event against a, a regular non-criminal boys' school. Now, this film was a huge success in the mother country and was a very big success here at a time when... There was great support for art cinema, not only English imports, but French, right. Italian. You had all the great directors, Fellini and Truffaut. Oh, back and, when regular people would go see a Fellini film. A, in yes. a movie theater. Yeah. Yeah. So um, this was not a Warner Brothers production. This is a no. film that we acquired the rights to, and it was distributed domestically by the Walter Reed uh, Continental Releasing, which was part of the Walter Reed chain, and they were very dedicated to bringing great films to this country. And uh, they really created enough of a reputation for it that it has rightly earned a very important place in, in cinema history. And, and fans of uh, Chumbawamba oh. will uh, notice that <laughs> the film yes. has things that they've heard. Yes, they, they did take some stuff from it. I, I just it, wanted to quickly mention that one of the smaller uh, roles in the film is played by a very young John Thaw, who is familiar, I hope, to our listeners for his extraordinary work in The Sweeney and Inspector Morse. And just one more shout out that this is a really good film to see if you're a fan of youth revolts in England uh, films, because yeah. you get right into the heart of the class struggle. And what it's like to grow up in this kind of depressed era. I mean, like... So if you liked having a wild weekend, which we really... <laughs> like, yeah, stuff, yeah. No, but absolutely. absolutely. Yes. And yes. even, you know, you got some Clockwork Orange in here, yep. too. Yep. Like, like, if you like that movie, you can see Proto-Alex. Now we go back to Culver City, California. <laughs> <laughs> the year is 1963. The director is Vincent Minnelli as Glenn Ford and a very young Ronnie Howard star with Shirley Jones and Dina Merrill in The Courtship of Eddie's Father. Now, if you know The Courtship yeah. of Eddie's Father from the television series, which we've 
brought you on Warner Archive Seasons 1 and 2, starring Bill Bixby, the motion picture is very, very different. As a kid, having first watched the TV show, right. when I encountered the movie, I think I watched, like, at the age of, like, six or seven, I watched this movie every time it was on, trying to figure out what's going on here. Now, I've seen the film for the first time now, and, you know, I was much more familiar in the past and obviously in the present with Bill Bixby's version of this. I mean, now, it was only a matter of, like, six years or so right. that separated these and two what, movies. What a seismic a, a cultural world, shift. A world of wow. difference. And but, this is where we get to the Mad Men yeah. analogy, because right. 1960, Glenn Ford, I mean, this you can think of— before the Kennedy assassination. It's, it's you know, imagine if this was the courtship of Don Draper. Yeah. And mean uh, a little more buttoned down Don Draper, but this is the cool, handsome, brilliant man in the snazzy suits in the nice offices with the goofy co worker played by Jerry Van Dyke. He's a recent widower, and his young son, Eddie, is trying to hook him up with any woman he can. And his romantic choices are like he, he can choose between a bombshell, a woman of sophistication, a single woman of sophistication. And the girl next door. And we can't help but uh, note that this is an on-screen reunion of Shirley Jones and, and Ron, Ron Howard, Howard after the I, music man. I have to say, Ron Howard's career is so long. Uh, he's a great noted director. He's in uh -huh. two of the most famous TV series of all time. But films like this and Music Man nail home what an amazingly talented child oh, he was. He was it's incredible. unbelievable. He is the Especially best... In this film, yeah, yeah in this film, he's so yeah. I mean, this Glenn is, Ford is a great, great, great yeah, talent, yeah. and Ronnie is better than him in this. He's got the whole movie wrapped around his finger. It uh, is about a really moving, powerful, scary, touching. I mean, he like hits so many emotional notes in the film, and at the same time, unlike Sam Margaret O'Brien, you know that this is just a little boy. Well, and again, I have to always shout this out, and we talked about this a long time ago, but. This from the director of Some Came Running, yeah. Meet Me in St. Right. Louis, yeah, yeah, Father right. of the Bride, yeah. Minnelli, The Sandpiper. Minnelli was the director, Madame Bovary, Minnelli, Lust for Life. Vincent Minnelli was the director that could do any genre. And yeah. no matter what was assigned to him or what he chose to do, he brought such an integrity to it. And I don't know of any other director that mastered so many different styles so well. And actually got these great performances out of young Oh, Ash. yeah. Well, and that was that was part of my point is yeah. he, he got great, uh, yeah. you know, the bad and the beautiful. Yeah. He got Oscar-winning performances out of so many actors. Now, I do have to say the thing that not having seen this film in such a long time and seeing it fresh and having recently seen Music Man for the streaming service, Shirley Jones, between these two films, and she's great Music Man, but she's really stunning in this film. Yes. And it's like, oh... Yes, because she made The Music Man under somewhat difficult circumstances because she was pregnant at the time. Right. And then this film, she's had the child. She was terrific she, she in looks everything like she did. She looks so much younger a year later. Yeah. <laughs> but then again, she's well, playing Mary she's in the library. To be, yeah. I mean, the yeah. difficulty they had, they had to make They had her, to frumpify her. Yeah. yeah, and she was so, you know, from Oklahoma on, yeah. you know, her beauty radiated from the screen. And, uh, and we should mention Stella Stevens. Well, let's put it this way. Eddie knew what he was doing. <laughs> well, if you see the trailer, you will uh, get oh, to yes. see. You find oh, the trailer, you'll the see. Trailer. You'll see the oh. uh, the measurements of all of the courtshipies. I mean, the the movie, you know, because coming through the TV show, we see it as more of a little sensitive portrait. But when you look at the trailer, the way that they marketed it, 
it uh, it's, it's very, it's very, very funny. It's very direct. Because that's not the movie. No. No. And speaking of marketing, we have to sell a classic film from 1963 and then a neo-classic <laughs> from oh. the 1990s as Emilio Estevez and Mick Jagger co-star in Free Jack. Alongside Rene Russo and David Johansson. And Anthony Hopkins. Playing the 90s Anthony Hopkins character. This is Anthony Hopkins right on the crest of the fava beans, yeah. wouldn't you say? Mm. <laughs> yes, he certainly was, because this was definitely shot in 91, came out in 92. And the reason for zeroing in on this date is because Free Jack is a science fiction story about people who kidnap... Bone Jack. They bone Jack... Uh, people who are about to die from the past to bring them to... The far future dystopian world of 2009. And you know what oh, happens gosh. in things like 2009? The Warner Archive Collection. Yeah, it does. We were <laughs> totally predicted in this. Now, there's a recent <laughs> film with Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Bruce Willis, Looper, that yeah, kind Looper. of reminded me a little bit of this. Yeah, I hadn't seen Free Jack since it came out. Oh, I had. I have to say, seen it. Dan, Dan was Dan, Dan yeah. ahead of time was like, I don't know if I need to see Free Jack again. And I had just seen everybody it. Everybody like, needs no, to oh, see Free Jack. You again. need to see the this again. years have been very kind to Free Jack. It, what was so perhaps many... a box office misfire in the nineties yeah. has now resulted in. A film that is the epitome of this era of filmmaking and is a lot of fun to watch. And that is very often the case that a film is the victim of marketing a misfire or whatever. You know, it doesn't get the attention and then suddenly you see it later and you realize, hey, but also this this film was right at the end of this sort of dystopian eighties, early nineties view. Reagan era view of the future. Yeah, Reagan view of the future. The nineties, as people remember them, hadn't really kicked in yet. Yeah, Clinton There's, had not been elected. Now, although the internet existed, and I was on it and had an email address in this year. There's no mention of the internet. There are computers, but they are computers with, are with big. very big, big keyboards that go click, 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 and click. The one big difference between 1992's, still graphics right, games. 1992's vision of the future and 2009 as 2009 is that we all know that real New York turned out to be a very, very nice, oh, yeah. very expensive place Whereas to live. Whereas in Free Jack, Park Slope is hell on earth. Yeah, he's like... You got to go to Park Slope. And then there's this pause, and I thought, oh, Park Slope's nice. And that's worse than where we are now. And I just started laughing because I was like, I forgot I'm in 1992-2009. So in brief, as if we're over that brief, yeah. Amelia Estevez yeah. plays a race car driver who gets snatched yes. from the early 90s at the moment of his death, brought to the future world of 2009 yes. with the intent of having a rich person's Brain. brain, well, not mind, but, right? Being taking over his body this from is the, the way, computer. Yeah, He's been this, uploaded. They when don't when use rich these people words. die, their consciousness is stored in this giant switchboard, and then they go in the past and bone jack someone, and then place the old mind in the and, new body. And then Dan, why don't they just take a poor person from the from present? the air? Why don't they just bone jack someone? Yeah. Why go to the trouble? Of yeah, time why travel? use because time Because of travel. the twenty years of the hole in the ozone layer, those bodies are no good. That's exactly what they say. Now, so one of, of the course, things that this film has brought upon us is every day we try to go to work and have to push our way through the <laughs> crowds of protesters of starving in mutants. front of our building demanding the availability of Free Jack on DVD. And, and they're carrying these placards that say Free Free Jack. Free Free Jack. We finally have done that. And, and you can now get it at our website. 
I just want to say also, George, the first time I came into your office and uh, I was looking at your Fabergé egg because, you know, we work in the corporation and I and I smashed it when I threw it back to you and just walked off. Well, my Fabergé egg actually was a Humpty Dumpty and he had a great fall. There's just a fun scene where Mick Jagger breaks a Fabergé egg because he's told to go get a body that's worth $15 million. And as the Fabergé egg crashes, I had remembered that I think Fabergé eggs are worth 15 to $20 million nowadays. Well, let's face are. it, our Fabergé eggs in the Warner Archive collection <laughs> are the Brute Library. <laughs> they Ooh, certainly are. nice. Anyway, this was a lot of fun to revisit. So these are the five back-in-print titles that you must find now at the Warner Archive collection at our website, shop.warnerarchive.com. But if you think that's the end of this brief little podcast, you are wrong, listeners, because there is not one, but two. There are two consumer letters that have come to us in envelopes with stamps. It is time for letters. That is a fresh letter coming out of the envelope. I am unfolding it. Well, somebody, wow, letterhead. It's on letterhead. This is from Ryan from... Platteville, Wisconsin, Warner Archive. From listening to your podcasts, I know that you like to receive letters. So I decided to write you by hand. Thank you, Ryan. And tell you why it's hard to write to you. Hmm. And the reason is this. You guys are awesome. Some of the things I love about Warner Archive starts with you guys, the staff. I really like that you interact with the public. You tweet back, you answer Facebook posts, you answer questions, and I can tell you are listening to what the public has to say. Please don't ever stop doing that. I also really like that a lot of your titles, initial orders, are shipped factory pressed. One of the coolest things I've seen you do was the limited edition cover of the Shazam release. I love that cover. I hope you offer more incentives on like that on future titles. I also love the bonus material you included on Legends of the Superheroes, my very first Warner Archive purchase. A good Thank choice. You. An excellent choice. As you can probably tell, I love your superhero releases. I know there are a few unreleased Super Friends cartoons left. Can you do anything about that? It would be awesome to get those released. We can, and we spoke to our colleagues at Warner Home Video, and they will be bringing all the rest of the Super Friends out to DVD at some point in the future. Yay! So look for that. And after you released the Kathy Lee Crosby version of Wonder Woman, I ran out of things to pester or is that beg you about. (laughs) I'm glad you also continue to plan the Superboy series. I am also buying the Alice DVDs. I feel confident that SSN4 will be released. Season. Oh, season. Thank you. I'm just reading. Along with Flow. But I hope you will keep releasing the seasons even after Polly Holiday leaves in season four. I love the show, and I'm very happy to be able to watch it again. I also hope you may consider the rest of the seasons of Mama's Family, even if they are syndicated versions. <laughs> Finally, before I close, any chance you guys could give me a shout-out on a podcast? My birthday is April 26th, and I'd like a shout-out on your April 23rd edition. Is this the April 23rd no, edition? No, this is the April, April 30th, 30th edition. Uh, we're, we're a little sorry, late. sorry, Ryan, Oops, but happy but birthday. Belated happy birthday. We can't sing it, but we'll say it. All right, well, <laughs> thank you, Ryan. Well, we can say for he's a jolly good fellow. That's right. That's what they usually do. And nobody can deny. And nobody can deny that we thank you for sending that letter. Thank you. Letter number two comes from... Mr. Pat in Burbank. Burbank, uh-oh. All right, now this is a heavy a envelope. Local boy. 
I'm thinking he may have done something here. Oh, look at this. Not Stand only is it... You know, it's in Burbank. We probably could have brought it to your he house. He sent you what you've longed for. Yeah. Not Our first SACE. SACE and crayon. Kudos. Kudos. Not only is it in multiple colors of crayon. Kudos. Burnt sienna. We have a self-addressed stamped envelope with a With Carmen Miranda stamp. Oh. Thank you, Pat. Okay, now let's get to the letter. Well, you'll see. Oh, look, it, it, there's even a protective coating. Well, that's so that nobody would see the check inside. <clears throat> Turn it around. That's the back. Oh, that is the back. Thank you. I'm. Hi, fellas. That Hi, would, Pat. That would indicate the beginning of a letter. Thank you, Dan. First time, long time, as they say on the radio. I'm writing to thank you for bringing Whoopi and Kid Millions to availability. You're welcome. I was also planning to chastise you for not heralding this tremendous news, but then I found I was one podcast behind <laughs> and almost missed it. Now that the wait is over for those titles, can we look forward to editions of Palmy Days or my favorite Roman Scandals? I love my Eddie. No love for the kid from Spain or Strike Me Pink? Come on. <laughs> All four of the other Goldwyn Eddie Cantor movies we hope to bring your way. If Whoopi and Kid Millions sell as well as we think they're going to, that should certainly make the possibility very, very likely. Matt, Dan, and George, thanks for the great work and entertaining informative podcasts. I hope someday to meet you all, comma, underline in pink crayon, especially George. You've been my hero since I first saw you on TCM. Best regards, Pat. P.S. I'm 49. I don't like writing in crayon. Uh, well, we thank you for writing in crayon. Now we have and to figure out and Smith. what to put in this safe. Well, Dan, I'm going to leave that in your hands. A disc won't quite fit. And now you can send your self-addressed stamped envelope or just a letter or whatever you like to Warner Archive Collection, B160-8, 3400 Riverside Drive, Burbank, California, 91522. Now, before we wrap up, we're going to take a little minute to talk about what's on in the streaming service. George, you got a good uh, streaming recommend? Well, to refresh people who don't know about it, Warner Archive Collection is now streaming with Warner Archive Instant, and people who want to find the Warner Archive Instant service can go to instant.warnerarchive.com. There is a website portal, and it, you can also stream content on Roku. And if you stream content on Roku, you can stream some of it in HD. And one of the great pleasures of Warner Archive Instant is being able to see classic films in true 1080p HD that have only been available on DVD in standard definition and cannot be seen on television in true high definition. But through Warner Archive Instant, you can see them that way. And one that we should talk about right now, per Dan's very wise suggestion, is Midnight Mary. Now, if you're a fan of pre-cuts, this is films as pre-cut as they come. Loretta Young, 19 as well in this? Yeah, yeah. Well, she's maybe to 20. Close to 20. Yeah. Playing a woman... This w later on would become a woman's picture, but at the time it was a, a startling and sympathetic picture about the societal forces that drive good people to make bad decisions. It's steamy, it's salacious, it's fascinating, it's dramatic. That's a good recommendation because I haven't seen that one. has a great co-star. And you know, if you sign up, you get the first two weeks are free. Just wanted to mention that. And also, 
I think Courtship of Eddie's Father, what we just talked about earlier, that's also available on the streaming service. So if that whet your appetite, maybe you might want to check it out on the streaming and service And there's more first. and more titles coming up every And week. Forbidden Hollywood is one of four showcases where we yes. have pre-programmed film festivals ready for your consumption. And uh, William Wellman's Midnight Mary is also uh, complemented by William Wellman's Wild Boys of the Road, also in high definition on the streaming service. So if you're a film lover, we urge you to check out Warner Archive yeah. Instant. If you've listened this far into the podcast, you should get instant.warnerarchive.com. Especially with that two-week free trial. Yeah, with that two-week free trial, at least go in and check it out because, I mean, almost everything on there is very pertinent to what we're talking about here, and it just really fills out your film-loving love life you could it could actually make your love life better that's what i'm I'm gonna go out and say that so on that note we'll have to wrap up this podcast and remind you that we have seven fantastic new releases on dvd the forbidden hollywood collection volume seven eight is enough the complete third season and five fantastic re-release titles now on dvd once again that were rare hard to find and out of print so we want to thank you for listening. I am George Feltenstein. Lover boy, Matt Patterson. I love Boston. Thanks for listening to the Warner Archive Collection podcast. Look for you next time.